everybody. Welcome to the inaugural first episode of the Analysis Paralysis Podcast. I am joined today by Chris. Hello, I'm Chris. And RJ. Hey, everyone. And that's it. There's not another person. I totally let off like that was, you know, there's going to be more than that. But yeah, we are here today to bring you this new podcasting venture. I know what you might be thinking. Why why another podcast? There's there's billions out there, but we think that we have something unique to offer here. And so I just wanted to first touch base and kind of tell y'all what what we're trying to do with this this podcast and kind of what it grew out of and what we want this podcast to be. And then after that, we're going to go ahead and talk about some board games that we've played recently, kind of talk about our various sessions that we had and yeah, kind of analyze these games that we've gotten to play uh, in these past few weeks or so. And then after that, we're actually going to have a little bit of a discussion about our gaming tastes, what we look for in games, what makes games tick for us, and all manner of things in, in that kind of arena. So yeah, what is this podcast? What I really want this podcast to be and what we want this podcast to be is a board game-centric podcast focused on experiencing games more deeply. We are in this hobby where there is a lot of focus on the new hotness, right? What's on Kickstarter, things of that nature. And I think I find myself wanting to combat that by talking more deeply about games, right? How is a game faring after several plays? What are we noticing as we have repeat plays of some of our favorites, right? And ultimately through that, trying to combat this need to continuously acquire and have these new experiences when in fact if we just returned to the old favorites we might be a bit happier in how we engage with this hobby yeah just wanting to analyze games in that fashion and also have topical discussions where we will have you know kind of a communally hosted podcast here where we can all share our thoughts and talk about various topics in an in-depth manner and i'm really excited to have a bunch of different people on this podcast and I've, I'm really thankful for having Chris and RJ here today, but also the opportunity to have probably many other individuals from the communities that I frequent uh, on the podcast as well. And that is kind of how this grew. Uh, we all kind of are in this one Discord that uh, I actually created, and I have seen so much discussion kind of grow out of that. And so many thoughtful questions posed and things like that. And so I've been really encouraged to try and start up a, a venture like this where we can have a platform to share a lot of those thoughts. So yeah, um, I might hand it over to to one of you two and just kind of talk about what you're excited for with with this kind of new venture that that you're joining me on. Sure, I'll take the reins briefly. I really liked that point you touched upon fostering this podcast around uh, maybe de-emphasizing the need to acquire more games while we focus on appreciating the games we already know we love and really um, mining them for all of the their nuances and depth that there is to explore. That is really what appeals to me about this uh, venture, this opportunity that we're, we're undertaking. Because um, when we were sort of workshopping names, one of the funnier ironic names was Talk is Cheap. Uh, in terms of the podcast, because it is a lot cheaper to talk about board games than it is to, uh, you know, get in the weeds and 
find the next weird obscure one, which I'm, this is speaking from experience. Um, you know, I put a lot of energy, probably waste a lot of energy doing that and probably spend a lot more money than I need to when I could just really put more thought, put more emphasis on the games that I love, that I enjoy, um, and really try to, I mean, for lack of a better word, like just invest myself, study them, find what really, you know, appeals to me and kind of narrow, really hone my taste and really just get value out of what I already have. Um, and yeah, I'm excited for the discussion that that can come from this. I'm excited for the discussion as well. Yeah, I'm particularly pumped about having an outlet to talk board games because at least in my board gaming circle uh, locally, of which I have a, a very eager group to play, but maybe not always to the uh, extent I am. I don't know if you guys come from a similar perspective where maybe you're you're the one person in the group whose enthusiasm for the hobby is a little disproportionate from everyone else's. Um, so having this additional outlet to talk board games, engage in the hobby from a new avenue, that's another aspect I'm really looking forward to. Absolutely. I definitely have experienced that. And having this outlet, I mean, the thing is we've all, I think, engaged with something like Discord for quite some time and perused BGG, found ourselves frequenting forums and things like that. But yes, when it comes to actually getting to discuss these things verbally with other people at our various game groups, I think that's a common experience where we're the we're the passionate ones. We're the ones that are bringing the games to these people a lot of the time, maybe teaching them, wanting to dig deeper into these titles, but finding those we game with not wanting that same level of engagement, which is totally fair, but also leaves us perhaps wanting. And so I'm super excited for this outlet, like you said, Chris, where we can discuss these things and not be afraid to show our nerdiness and get into the weeds of these various topics and games that we're going to talk about. And yeah, I hope that for those that may or may not be listening, that you will join us in this venture and see how it grows. There's going to be a lot of growing pains. I know for myself, not very experienced with with podcasting, but I know that this is something that I am passionate about growing into and, and learning more about and getting better presence and production and all those things, better flow. So if you guys would be willing to grow with us, I think you will find something unique here. I don't know that at least what I envision for this podcast is something that I've found elsewhere. And I hope that it's going to be an amalgamation of a lot of good elements of other podcasts that I love listening to. And I hope that it's the best parts of all of those, that it might be perhaps better than the sum of its parts. And so, yeah, we just wanted to kind of introduce the show uh, and give you guys an idea of what this what this is. And we then wanted to kind of go into a bit of a discussion about the games that we've been playing recently. You know, it's a pretty common thing. And so we figured we'd, we'd include that as well, give you guys an idea of the games that we've gotten to the table recently. So I actually want to throw it to, uh, to RJ. Why don't, you, why don't you lead us off? Tell us about a game you've been playing recently. Oh, wow. Okay. I did not expect to go first. <laughs> um, <laughs> so 
some, I guess some mild background. I've, I've been gaming for quite some time now and um, I have a pretty strong idea of what I enjoy and what I gravitate to uh, towards, but uh, my live gaming has been fairly limited of late. So I have a infrequent uh, live game group kind of meet, meets once or twice a month. Um, and that's when I kind of have the diversity of games, but otherwise a lot of my gaming is either two player with my wife or uh, a, a gamut of online asynchronous games. Um, so that, that being said, a couple of games uh, did stand out, but you know, I'll, I'll talk about one for now. Um, and it was Magna Grecia, which is a, uh, a game by Leo Colavini, a joint game by Leo Colavini and Mikhail Schacht. So these are fair, like if you if you're in the know of older Euro board games, uh, these two are like kind of titans, <laughs> it, or they're very very well respected. So imagine a joint game with them, um, and yeah, I mean, what did I think of it? Uh, it captured my attention. It captured my attention. So the the goal of the game is essentially to create really really valuable lucrative markets. So your markets are these little hexagons. Um, represented by these hexagons on this sprawling hexagonal board um visually the game is not not <laughs> pretty it looks like it looks like someone decided to just like it's just like puked beige of varying yeah. shades um surprisingly it wasn't a like a graphical nightmare it just looked really ugly but i could i could actually discern what i needed to do and where i needed to go but anyway the goal of the game is to make these markets really lucrative and you do that by building routes towards them. So it is, in essence, a route-building game um, where you build cities or you build routes. You know, that's that's it. And I love I love that part of it. I love that it's like two things you can do on your turn. Um, and I think what really makes it shine is the fact that uh, a market, uh, sorry, a city is where markets go, but cities can be valuable to all players who have a market there so your market is as valuable as as many routes exit from its city and so the whole game you're sort of like jockeying and trying to time the correct placement of cities putting your markets in them expanding routes from them and making those markets more lucrative so like example the really simple example is if you have a single hex city if you have four connections coming out of it each market in that city is going to be worth four money which is points um, and so you, you can kind of see the structure here. It's, it's a very abstracted game and it's a very, it's, it's like focused on shared incentive very much. So, so like you, you can imagine I'm building a city, uh, I'm building it up, building it up. I'm expanding routes from it. And someone on a later turn says, Hey, I'm going to pay the cost it takes to put a market there. Now I have secured points at the end of the game as routes from that city extends throughout the game my investment is going to be even more right so i really like that element of it um there's another really cool part of it this is the part where i, I i'm kind of bittersweet on um it's a fixed turn order so if i remember correctly you get 12 turns in a game uh, uh you get 12 turns in a game but you have the opportunity to go first in a round four times so you have like this stack of turn order tiles each turn order turn order tile has a fixed order of players on it. So you're assigned a color. So you're going to flip a tile over and you're like, oh, okay, this turn, yellow is first, red is second, green is third, brown is fourth. And then that's like preceded. 
so that every four turns, somebody has the opportunity to go first. The other cool thing about those tiles is they sort of dictate the strength of your turn. And so like one tile might say this turn, at most you can lay two track. This turn, at most you can lay three tiles or three cities. And so you could get a turn where you get to go first, but your your actions are sort of weaker. Or you could get a turn where you go second and your actions are stronger. Does that kind of make sense? It sounds like there's like a heavy element of the those that shared infrastructure like you're talking about. Yes, yes. So I guess what I didn't like about that, despite it being clever that your turn orders are seated, um, was that it sort of like pulls the rug under you sometimes. Turn order is so important in this game. Um, and if you go end up being told you're going last on a turn where you've amassed all these resources to do a bunch on the map and people get in your way, your turn is just like neutered by virtue of the tile coming up. So I don't know, have you guys seen games that do this variable but fixed turn order structure before? I I've, I've rarely have seen that. And I, that's like my only qualm really about the game that it kind of, eh, kind of pulls the rug out from under you when you don't expect it. Would you say it's to the, it can mess with your plans to the extent of a game like German Railways, which its whole gimmick is the turn order is very variable. Uh, players may not even get turns during certain rounds. Yes, that is a great <laughs> comparison. I did not even think about that. Uh, what, your question was, do you think it would mess to mess with your turn to the extent that German Railways does? Is that what you were yeah, saying? Yeah, is it that pronounced of a... Um... A hindrance? I think it's worse. I oh, think wow. in German I think in German railways, um you're sort of trying to orchestrate the best off turn that you can. You're kind of happy that you're going off turn because if you you know this, but for the listeners who don't know, you are usually the odds of you actually getting a turn is inversely proportional to how well you're doing in the game. So your discs, the rarity of your disc indicating it's your turn, the rarity of it showing up in the bag is higher if you have higher income. So it's kind of sort of balancing. Like the people who have lower income, they're going to get a chance to go more often. Uh, Here, there's no like relation to turn order. You could be doing really well or really poorly. You're not really, there's no, I'm not saying you're not rewarded for it. There's no direct correlation to going first or last, depending on how well you're doing in the game. Sometimes you could be doing really, really poorly. Oh, suddenly you get to go first. Sometimes you could be doing really poorly and like, I'm last again, or I'm last again. Like, like it doesn't. And okay. (laughs) That said, that happens in German railways too. So when I said you're trying to set up the most valuable or lucrative off turn, usually when it's not your turn in this game, nobody's helping you. Right. But by virtue of German railways being a cube rails game, having that shared incentive, having you bought into shares, you're hoping that you're, cross-invested enough, you're making enough money that people are still making money for you when your disc isn't pulled from the bag. Does that kind of I make see. sense? Yeah. So let yeah. me let me see if you agree with this statement where the, the variable turn structure in a game like German Railways is almost acting like a catch-up mechanism. Would you say the variable turns in Magna Gratia is almost arbitrary? Do you feel... Like it needed to be in the game, or what is Man. it? What is it adding to the design that a static turn structure would have yeah. lacked? Um, I think it adds suspense, honestly. Oh, okay, without that's true. 
without this or without some way turn order would shift, it would be a rather dull game. Like as long as you could keep, as long as you could know when exactly it would be your turn, it becomes more of an efficiency game. But because of the way this turn structure is, it now leans towards like risk management and speculation. Like, do I want to make this turn the turn that counts now? This is the time I can go first. I don't know when it's going to happen again. Uh, It's going to happen within the next four rounds, but I don't know how soon. Versus if it was just a regular fixed order, like I know I'm going to get in my turn in four four turns. On on their turn, I'm going to do this. On their turn, I'm going to do this. And then it's me. And now I get to do the thing I planned for. But that's the suspense part of this. So, you know, honestly, for the the weight of the game, it's kind of really clever and brilliant and it keeps players engaged and you're always like, oh, is it me? Is it me? Uh, and there's just that little bit of nose turning moment where like, you're like, it's it's never you at the right time. Um, so I, I will say this, your resources are finite. So mm. there, you you have to eventually, kind of like you played Hansa Teutonica, both of you, you know, yes. that, that, that refill fan. action. Yes. So there's a refill action here. So you have to kind of decide when you're going to refill. So that's an element of risk. Like, do I refill now um, and make sure I'm ready for when my turn comes up, when I go first? So that's a great question. I mean, I, I, I think it's there for the suspense, honestly. What, uh, what was the playtime like? I'm curious. Oh, it's like an hour or less. It, it's quick. So that's great, too. Um, very, very quick. Very, very easy. Uh, I will say this, like there's something there to explore and I would definitely revisit again uh, and really kind of figure out how to play around that turn order thing. That would be, that would be pretty, pretty interesting. So yeah, that's sorry if you mentioned this at the top RJ, but was this an initial play for you? First play. First play. Got it. Yeah. So I I guess you you would revisit though, is what you're saying. You would definitely revisit it. Yeah. 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 I don't know if I'd seek it out. Um, it feels kind of a similar space as other light route building shared incentive y Euro games, but it's I think it's 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 a good game. I think it's a good game for what it does. So yeah. Either of you Wait. want to take take the wheel? Yeah, yeah, I think I think I will. Um I want to talk a little bit about Go. Uh the the ancient <laughs> Chinese game. Yes, Chinese, right? I think I believe it originated in China. Yes. But, but it's now, popular throughout all of East Asia. Correct. Yes. Very popular in Japan and Korea now as well. And seemingly kind of growing in popularity in the in the States as well by the efforts of several individuals and, and you know, associations and things like that. So I actually first played Go like a year ago. And I had an immediate fascination with it, but it was something that I just don't think I was ready for. I didn't have the kind of desires that I have now to pare down my collection to to such a degree that I'm doing now or to to play games to such a depth that I have as a desire now. And so when I played it the first time, definitely I, I had a good time, but it was there was so much to to learn and explore, and and of course there still is now that I'm going to talk about it. But I I was intimidated, but still in a good way, but in in enough of a fashion that I didn't want to give it the time that I knew that it deserved then. And funny enough, I don't know really why, but recently I picked it back up again, 
I think it's probably because I just was warming up to playing games online a little bit. And so going on to online go, what is it? Online, what is it, Chris? What's the title? Online OGS? Go. I know that's OGS. the acronym. Yeah, I don't, I'm not sure. At least online go. I don't know what the S is actually, but. Maybe uh, server? Yeah, maybe. Uh, but playing it on there has been really, really enjoyable and given me better access to the game and, and the ability to maybe dig a little bit deeper. And I don't know, for some reason, I, I think because I am in a different place right now with the hobby, the depth that I know is there is even more enticing than it was the first time around. And so it's been so enjoyable to dive into this, to play games both live and asynchronously, and to get to play with various opponents. I've played with some of my coworkers, uh, but I've also gotten to play with uh, Chris a little bit, and it's been super enjoyable to play online with with someone that you know instead of just someone you know kind of random and kind of grow with them a little bit. So, I, Chris, I don't know. You can kind of speak to some of our games, but it's been just a really excellent time. It has been. Uh, yeah, I I'm also just dipping my toes into the the total institution that is playing go and it's been a it's been a start and stop journey from me um it was a couple years back in 2020 where uh quins from shut up and sit down published a big long video review of go and that was the catalyst that sparked my interest i just a really enthralling review so i that summer i just played a whole bunch online against just easy ai and um, I was thinking to myself, man, I totally envision a different on an alternate timeline where Go could be the only game I play. This is a sneak peek of our uh, maybe our gaming tastes discussion that's coming later this episode. But Go is quintessentially a game that should appeal to me. But man, those initial plays, the game was so opaque. I knew. I knew the enjoyment was there. I just had to dig for it, but I wasn't quite ready to invest the effort. So, you know, 12 months go by. It's now summer of 2021. I get the hankering to try go again. Same deal, more or less, just playing against AI. And I guess it's become an annual tradition now because it's 2022. Finally, go has clicked. And partially what has helped that transition for me was stop bothering with the AI, play with some actual human opponents. I didn't I didn't think it would make that much of a difference in such an abstract game, but it really does. It is a far more enjoyable experience, even just playing online against a real flesh and blood adversary. Thomas has uh, gifted me, I think, three or four great plays so far, and it's it's been funny. After every play, the score gap between our performances has narrowed considerably to the... Our most recent game has been the most fun, where I lost by... It was 1.5 points. That was all the difference it took. It, it couldn't have been any thinner of a margin, really. Yeah, um, you you thoroughly, but, thoroughly whooped me the first two games, I think um yeah we played a couple 13 well we've only played 13 by 13 games we haven't yet graduated to the 19 by 19 we plan to 
but that's the next step. Yeah, you thoroughly, thoroughly destroyed me in those first couple games. And then, yeah, we had this most recent game that was a an absolute nail biter came down. To <laughs> it the really wire. was. It was excellent. And that that might have been the play where I was a bit I was kind of finally over the hump in terms of investment. Obviously, there is so much to learn. I've I've only I've not even played a full nineteen by nineteen game. I, I like the the amount that there is to discover in this game is truly horrifying. But in the best way, like I know that for the rest of my life, if I wanted to, I could play this game, and I'm never going to be able to give it the time to to crack you know a certain ranking. But I know that there's always going to be something to improve in, and that's the fascinating part is understanding like there's so many openings and there's so many emergent aspects of the game there's so many things that i've even heard talk of that i've not seen because they're so specific right i have not really seen seki or stalemate play out really i've not seen snapbacks where you're kind of sacrificing stones to capture more of your opponent's stones right these are like words that i've heard that I've not yet gotten to see play out. And so I'm super fascinated by that. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to getting to see these emergent moments. And I think part of the enticement for me is the culture that surrounds it, the body of study, the fact that I could read and listen and watch about this game for an equal amount of time that I could probably play it. And also getting to engage with the vocabulary right like learning tanuki and joseki and sente and gote and all these words where i'm a lot of times they just mean something rather simple when i translate them to english right tanuki play somewhere else okay but when it's tanuki there's something there's like a power in that word Mm -hmm. that gives it a myth like a myth to it or like i don't know like a a mystical nature uh you know i don't want to ascribe too much meaning there but there's something powerful in the words used and the culture around it that makes it so enticing to me very well said Uh, exactly mystique like legacy like you know that's the history is all there it's very rich right besides being such a really deep game (laughs) to imagine someone in the year 1000 BC playing fundamentally the same exact game that is captivating my interest right now. It's such a trippy thought to have. It's so simple. Like it's crazy how simple the game is, right? Even when compared to something like chess, chess has markedly more rules. Like you have to learn the movesets you have to learn like, and that's just to play the game correctly. But the thing here is to play the game correctly, you need to understand like three things. And I can tell you them in like five minutes, probably probably even less, probably like a minute. I can probably tell you the rules to the game, right? You're placing on these intersections. When a stone loses its last adjacent intersection, it dies, you capture it. It's so simple. And the fact that the pieces are stationary, right? You're adding to what's already on the board. What's on the board, barring it being captured, will be there for the rest of the game. And there's no unique move sets right all of the emergence is in the sequencing right joseki the order how things are played out like what you do in different areas of the board how you fight how you play offensively defensively how you play territorially 
Like people can have expressive play styles in this game, which seems impossible to me when you first hear about it. It's like it doesn't seem like there's that much room for expression, but then you learn about the game and you realize, oh, yeah, you can totally play this game in, in a myriad of ways. And it's just fascinating to me. So so let me ask you something. You mentioned this, Chris. You said it was really the the ability to play against a live person, whether it was online, right? By live, I mean a person, not an AI. Why do you think that was like the catalyst? Like what, what fulfilled you from that versus an AI? You, obviously, you're not even talking to Thomas. You know, you're playing, you're taking turns, sometimes asynchronously. So, but why... Why do you feel that's the case? Yeah, that is a great question. Um, it's funny how this, I think, ties back into what Thomas was just talking about, the potential for um, expression to come through in the play. At times, I couldn't get a read on what my AI opponent really cared about. Its moves were quite cold, quite methodical, where, where when I'm playing against a human you can almost tell where what what is important to them what their priorities are they will focus on certain hot spots on the board they'll make mistakes and miss potential captures that you've set up a little further away a little in the periphery of their vision i've gotten a, a couple live games in i went to a a local college to attend their go club meeting i was so enthusiastic oh, nice. to play this game and got thoroughly stomped but i had a a very willing teacher to explain things to me so that was very helpful and i think partially what made it click this time was just the number of reps i now have under my belt it's been a few years of trying to break into go to know just enough about the game to learn more about it um i feel like i've cleared the hump where it's now not completely opaque to me i know enough to appreciate the game and begin the lifetime journey of improvement that the game would demand from me um so while, while i'm beginning at the very bottom rung i now know enough to climb the ladder absolutely i feel the same nice. exact way where there's that initial hurdle and absolutely there's still so many opaque things to to both of us but the basic bare bones mechanics and, and general general strategy at times is less opaque to me now. And so when I when I watch some of these professional games, certainly I'm not understanding all the movesets, but I'm I'm understanding generally like, oh, that seems like a territorial play, right? Or or that's an aggressive play. He's attaching. Or oh, they're cutting, right? That's a cut. That's a big deal in this area of the board, right? There's those things are starting to crystallize and out of that is coming a lot more satisfaction and seeing that and recognizing that. And, you know, I have a couple go books now and I, I anticipate this will be quite the rabbit hole. So, and when you're talking about Chris, when you're talking about playing against an AI, right. And then playing against a human where you're reading incentives and you're reading possible mistakes and, oversight and things like that that's why it's all the more interesting i i finally got around to watching the AlphaGo documentary and awesome um it makes so much sense why that was so revolutionary for these professional players who are playing against it right one of the greatest players a lot of people would maybe say one of the greatest go players of the modern era would be lee sit all and like for him to 
be so thoroughly stumped by some of the moves that a computer is making. It just shows like the different ways that humans think versus something like an AI, which of course you're talking about playing against a very rudimentary AI. It's not really comparable. Definitely. But, but it's yeah, not AlphaGo. It's interesting to think about like how much of a human component is is in this game, right? We talk about a lot of these modern Euros that I don't think you're going to hear a lot about on the show, which I'm very okay with. But there's a lot of times where the game is just in the way. And so we talk a lot about games where they're, they're streamlined or they're, the rules kind of melt away and you're just left with the other players. And I think that something like this game is the home, like the pinnacle of that, right? Like it is, ex- it is human expression on a board and how you want to play your game, right? Like I, I remember in that documentary, them talking about these kind of, kind of the art of Go and how you can, the beauty of watching it develop. And that's why like, I'm not even really that upset when I lose. I mean, I'm, I'm upset when I play poorly and I get you know, totally stomped and don't really understand what's going on. But even in that, there's times where I'm just appreciative of the development of the board. And so, yeah, super excited. Some 19 by 19 games are definitely coming. I think Chris and I are going to get on that, get some live plays in online as well. So, All right, I'll, uh, I'll transition into playing a game. Got my first two plays of in recently. And Thomas said something in relation to Go that I feel applies uh, admittedly to a lesser extent here. But Thomas was saying how a lot of these modern Euro games that I often enjoy can have a bunch of rules that get in the way of playing. And I found that was not really the case when I sat down and played Power Grid for the first time. So Power Grid, classic 2004 Friedman Fries game. I, I imagine a lot of you listening, uh, not only have you heard of the game, you've probably played it a whole bunch more than I have because I was only introduced to this game in August of this year. And now I've had the opportunity to play it twice, both at five and four players on the Germany map. And I'm having a very solid time with it. I, I taught it to my core gaming group locally. And I'm one of my longtime best friends. And when we finished our first game, he had a remark that struck me. He said, you know, when we were first getting into board games, he had heard about Power Grid and how he had categorized it with a bunch of other heavy Euro games. He lumped it in the same category as Food Chain Magnate or Gaia Project. He thought it was going to be a big bear to learn, lots of rules overhead. And we were both kind of shocked how simple this game is and approachable to just start playing. It is a it is an economic simulation of running an electricity plant in Germany or uh, other places in the world, depending on the map you play. But each round has a, just a very simple procedural structure to it. It begins with an auction for power plants. You quickly buy up the resources you need to power your plant. And then you jockey for position on the main board, expanding the network of cities you have the rights to supply with electricity. Then you get paid for doing so, rinse and repeat, play an indeterminate number of rounds and declare your winner. And that's Power Grid in a nutshell. So yeah, it it avoids a lot of the um, rules bloat that maybe creeps into some more modern designs. It's definitely a precursor to many modern games. 
And I, I really admired its elegance. It looked like you had something to say, Thomas. Was I mistaken? No, yeah. I, I just wondered. So it's funny. This game I've found is actually quite polarizing. I think there's plenty of naysayers when it comes to Power Grid, but also plenty of people that, you know, uh, declare its merits to, to all who will hear it, you know, and then some people that fall in the middle. But I was curious. I, I, I quite enjoy it. I, I'll actually talk a bit about my experience as well with it, but... RJ, yeah. do you, how do you feel about Power Grid? I have not played it. Not had a chance really? to, but how do I feel about it is Wild. a different question. <laughs> I feel <laughs> like I should play it. I just never got around to it. And, and I'll tell you why. It's, and it's for, the, for the very reason that you just said. It was Thomas, you said you got the impression that it was quite polarizing. That's all the feedback that I kept reading. And one of the things that stood out was, oh, it's a really good auction game for its time. Uh, but there are better auction games now. Or it, it, it still holds up to this day, and I would go back to it, but I don't usually do that. you know, Because, again, the reason cited is they'd rather play other auction games. And my impression, correct me if I'm wrong, is it's primarily an auction game? Is that you're auctioning for turn order? I could be wrong here. I could be uh, wrong. It's, it's, the auction is such a huge part, yes, of course. Mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. i think you are also playing it, i don't know i guess it's probably similar to something like an age of steam where i think that the that's I, I think that the rest of the game is important right you wouldn't have a game if it was just an auction right you need the route building you need the cube distribution right that informs the auction and so sure the auction is what drives the turn order and the abilities and so it's a huge thing in, in something in any age of steam specifically in the same sense Power Grid is, yes, fueled by the auction, right? You're auctioning off these power plants. And then whoever, I believe, well, actually, you're not auctioning off turn order because turn order is determined by whoever has the most houses built, right? Whoever okay. is, yeah. whoever has the most houses out built is first in turn order and, and back and so on, right? And then tiebreaker okay. is whoever has the highest numbered power plant. So all these power plants have a number that generally relates to their strength. And then that will break the tie in terms of if multiple people have the same amount of houses built out on this map. Um, okay. But what you're ultimately doing is you you are having this beginning auction for power plants, which is definitely a huge part of it. That's how you power the houses. That's how you make money, which allows you to then buy better power plants and build more houses okay. and get the money that you need to do that. Um, Got it. But I think there is enough intrigue in how you manipulate the the market, right? The su- the supply and demand, mostly the uh, demand, uh, kind of manipulating the supply, I-, I guess, of the different resources. Uh, but then there's also the kind of spatial element where you're actually often getting opportunities to block out individuals from various cities that are on the map by building into them first and so on. But I think ultimately the most polarizing thing about this game is not that it has been surpassed necessarily by other auction games and and people hold that opinion sure Mm -hmm. but it's the sandbagging aspect that a lot of people take issue with right because Mm -hmm. everything other than auctioning off power plants is done in reverse turn order you buy resources in reverse turn order you build houses in reverse turn order and those are huge elements of the game because you have this market and if people buy up the resources of a certain type, they become more expensive later 
if you're buying them in the same round. And so you want to be the person buying them earlier. But the way to buy them earlier is to be earlier in turn order, thus having fewer houses out on the board. So and the ultimate people... the ultimate win condition is number of house number of cities you power at the end of the game. It's right. it's like a very explicit catch up mechanism where the player with the potential to power the most houses is in the least advantageous position in turn order. And yeah, that's a very controversial part of the game. I hmm. I kind of realized in my second play, and this is maybe obvious, but the reason that's there is the player with the most houses house presence on the board is presumably doing the best, and they also receive the highest income of money at the end of the round. So that that is the potential for a snowballing victory for them. They're in the lead and they're receiving more income. How can the game rubber band the other players to give them a chance? Let's put them in an awful turn order position in every other phase of the game. And it it kind of feels arbitrary, but I don't think the game would work very well with without it. And so I think it can certainly be a critique of the game for some, but what I also come back with, and it's a game I enjoy, is that I think a lot of games are about sandbagging. Like, a lot of interactive mm. games, I've thought about this, They there's an element of sandbagging. If you go out, get out to a quick lead and advantage, you're painting a target on your back, right? So you have to decide, is that worth it to you? Is that worth whatever benefit you're getting by being so far out ahead, right? There, any, any game with any meaningful amount of interaction, I think, has this element to some degree. It just may be less stated, right? Maybe more understated. And so I just, I don't see it as an issue in this game, even though it is so pronounced, because it's such a, if anything, I respect the game more for putting it on such full display and making it something that you actively make a part of your decision making because it's so clear that that is a part of the general round structure and the play around turn order. So that's kind of mm-hmm. my like repost, I guess, of uh, people that have that criticism. But I definitely understand it being something that maybe people feel has been lost to the annals of time and they enjoy other auction games. But I, I think it definitely, it still holds its own. And I also think it's cool to have like the various maps and stuff. They add a nice little flavor to it. So I don't know. Yeah. I, the other issue is it's, there's the personal issue. If I decide to go in on that, I'm going to want to get all those, all those funky maps. Yeah. <laughs> just like Age of Steam. But um, I, I, I agree with you, Thomas, that sounds just like it's part of the game. It's an element that you have to manage managing turn order is part of a lot of games, right? So I don't know how egregious it is or how much it really matters if you're just playing in a casual standpoint, but I know they play power grid tournaments, right? So like people find a way to make this competitive and quote-unquote fair and reasonable. Yeah, um, You can sort of highlight what's important about the game, and it's not. I, it's probably not just sandbagging. Well, and I will say like this the This is speaking maps. from no experience. The, the maps are not super necessary, like, because most of, like, they're okay. cool. They have little wrinkles and stuff like that. I would say on average, I don't have a ton of experience with Age of Steam, but I I suspect the sentiment is correct in that the maps in Age of Steam have a greater impact on how a game plays out than a map in Power Grid does. But, gotcha. ult- because ultimately a lot of the variability of Power Grid is in how the power plants come out. And that okay. is a huge element of how the game goes, because it's 
mostly randomized and the order that they come out can really have an impact on the shape of the game. So I would say for those that are interested in it, I would combat your completionist tendencies and understand that the maps are not going to be the thing that make you love Power Grid. You're going to love it because of many other reasons. Whereas with Age of Steam, I'm not saying that that's not the case as well. Like I'm sure people play Rust Belt a billion times, but I get the sense that more, more so the intrigue is in, oh my gosh, there's 250 maps for this game. What, what's out there? So that's kind of where I fall down on that. Sorry, I feel like I hijacked your entry here, Chris, but, you know. No, I mean, I can totally forgive it when your insights are so uh, thoughtful and well, well-spoken. Um, uh, I guess it just in conclusion, to get back to the part of has Power Grid held up over time, would I prefer to play other auction games in its place? I think, I think Power Grid is going to stick around in my collection. Uh, it's funny, I was intending to bring up Age of Steam as a point of comparison, and you two totally beat me to it. So I guess it's I'm not out of place comparing the two games. I think the comparison does lend itself. I mean, both games start with a consequential auction right at the beginning of the round. Both games see players needing to constantly assess their budget and making sure they don't overpay too early in the round so that they can do everything they're intending to do later on. They have similar run times. I find Age of Steam to currently be the more thinky, compelling game for my taste, but the one feather in Power Grid's cap is back to that that ease of play I, I opened talking about. Um, I have a lot of irons in the fire right now in terms of trying to uh, entice new players to come join me and play board games. And I had one such new player at our most recent Power Grid session. All I've played with him before were some party games like uh, Spyfall and Dixit and some light strategy games. I've introduced him to Through the Desert and Modern Art. So it was a bit of a step up. I thought, let's give Power Grid a chance and see how he takes to it. And he picked the game up right away. I don't think Age of Steam would have been a very smooth transition, but Power Grid is a light enough game, a elegant enough game that I think it can be a success with a a wide variety of people. Maybe not everybody, but you can get people to play Power Grid who otherwise might not be interested in a modern midweight Euro. I think the game is has an easier onboarding ramp than those. And that those were all of my thoughts. You're not going to go bankrupt in Power Grid. That's the right. That's kind of the right, thing, right? Right. <laughs> you get paid even if you don't produce any electricity in the round. Yeah, exactly. So it's a gentler game for you may sure. Still, you may still well be out of the game, but uh, the game won't make you feel too bad, you know? But It um, won't tell you you have to stop playing and leave the room. <laughs> yes. Well, I wanted to close this kind of part out, I guess, with a couple recent plays of Fresh Fish, the freshest of fish. This is a game that has a lot of folklore in some of the Discord communities that I and at least the other two hosts also find ourselves in. And it's something that has proven hard to nail down a rule set for. I will say that, I suppose. Nonetheless, it is a game I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoy. But only really recently have I found it to really produce in me a 
satisfaction in the game itself. I had a run of plays last year through the last, you know, uh, about eight months ago. Uh, about that time, I had, you know, a run of 10 or so plays. And it was something that I had this initial enticement for, but I found that we kind of devolved into a meta that I didn't really enjoy. It's a auction game, a bidding game, and I found that at least in the first edition, which is what I really only have any desire to play, there was a lot of times where people weren't really bidding on any of the the stalls that come up for those that know the game. And I found that that really created a game that I was not super in love with. It was still something I enjoyed just for the sheer fact of watching the kind of paths and roads grow on the map as they're automatically placed. But it wasn't until recently that I feel like I've tweaked a few things thanks to some Discord members and and other uh, communities that I'm in that have really been putting this game through its paces. Through implementing some of those changes, I've really found a game that I I think I, I might even love. And so just really been enjoying that. I, I showed it to two groups recently, and both plays went very, very well. The first game especially... The whole night was just filled with great plays. We played some other games as well, but that game of Fresh Fish, it really stuck out to me. And I, we play a lot of games, right? I think relatively to your average person. But I would say that even though we play a lot of good games, I would, you know, I think that would be our opinion about the games that we tend to play. There's not always like good sessions, right? Like just because the game is great doesn't mean every play is great. Like, it might have a minimum quality to it, right? Like you enjoyed it. You didn't have a bad time. But it's, you know, you kind of get to the end of it and you're like, oh yeah, cool, sweet. I played another game of Food Chain, you know? Like I love the game, but like that kind of had a similar structure or something like that. It, it didn't inspire me, right? But this game of Fresh Fish really got me. Like it inspired me. Like, it, like we had so many moments during the game where we, we stopped and we evaluated the board state like collectively and we were at at an auction right an auction was happening and we saw how the reservation discs the discs were placed out on the map and we all kind of had this light bulb moment and realized how impactful this auction was going to be and so then there was like 5 minutes of chatter around that one board state that one situation and just so great. I love when those moments come up. I actually, I'm not one to usually love a ton of table talk, like a ton of deliberation of like, well, your incentive is this and your incentive is this. And so that means I should probably, and then you'll do, but then like, I don't love a ton of that. I think it bogs down a game none as, like in a way that I don't love all the time, but when it's like a sprinkling of it or even, even a little bit of it, but in the proper moment, it can really add a lot of spice to a game. And so yeah, for those that don't know, the kind of hallmark of the first edition of this game is that when you place something on the map, whether whether that be uh, one of your stalls, which is the thing that you're trying to get... You're basically you're trying to have the least distance between your stall pieces, which you have four of, and the requisite, in, in my edition, the requisite trucks, right? And you count that distance via paths, and you're trying to get the least... Uh, some distance of all four of those, also subtracting any money that you didn't spend, and everyone gets a set amount of money at the beginning of the game. But when you place these stalls on the map, or when you place these what are called flea market tables on the map as well that just serve to block connections, 
they cause often roads to just be automatically placed on the board. It's not something that a player does directly by taking, you know, an action, for example, and placing a path on the board. Instead, it's it's something that happens automatically when certain qualities are true of the board. And it's this weird mind-melding kind of hypothetical questioning that you're doing for these various spaces on the board as you ask, you know, if this weren't a road, if this weren't a path, would it would it being anything other than a path cause another space to be totally separated from the path? And if that's true, then you put a path there, right? Like the <laughs> fact that you're asking these hypothetical questions about things that may or may not come to pass is just it blew my mind the first time I played this game. And I was I was in from that moment. I, I needed to understand it. I didn't even understand it when I first played it. Like even not even just like, oh, how do I do well? But like, wait, how does this work? Like it broke my brain in a way that I'm not sure that another game has broken my mind. It was just Except go. Yeah, except except maybe go. But but even then it's like that was more a strategic thing. And this it was like I just couldn't wrap my head around how that worked. But still, you know, we settled into that meta that I was talking about. And so coming back to it with some of these new kind of approaches and having really lively games has really brought it up in my esteem and I think it's it's rising in my personal ratings for sure. So I don't know if you guys have thoughts on the game, but feel free. I mean, I am as you describe your experience, your thoughts, I'm just nodding along emphatically, Thomas. I have the same sentiments, almost identical. When I first learned it, I was just there was that jolt of lightning. Like, hey, this is special right here, right now. This this expropriation, how you have to sort of visualize this like quantum state of the road. It could possibly be here or it could be there. It just depends on what people do. Um, yeah. And I, what I think I, I like the best about it is it really, for lack of, you know, maybe this is oversimplistic, but it can be boiled down to like two elements. You have the spatial game where you're really trying to create a, uh, beneficial like infrastructure for yourself but then you have the auction game and it's about playing both of those in my opinion both of those equally well like i I think there's some discussion about the game about how you know it really should skew towards auctioning better and that should really check how you play the board but i i think and what i take from the game is these two are both very very much on the at the at the front of the game like just presented to you the challenge is to wrestle with both at the same time and it's so good and 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 like you said you know it's kind of the way i i view fresh fish is sort of in how i i view go i i mean i'm not nearly not nearly as competent um in in go but like you when you look at a stone you look at a stone in fresh in go like you look at a disc in fresh fish and you sort of like visualize hey this can impact this stretch of land just like in Go, this stone impacts this stretch of the board. And mo- most of the time, like you can, that's accurate. Like, okay, that's actually how it's going to pan out. But, you know, that's that's like that opacity, that quantum state, it's just so engrossing <laughs> constantly. That's why I can't let go of the special part of Fresh Fish. It's not just an auction game to me. Like, I love that part of it. Right. A single flea market placement can impact the entire surrounding landscape. Um, just very consequential. Uh, admittedly, most of my Fresh Fish experience has been with the second edition rule set. I have played with the expropriation three times, I think. I still need 
more reps to get it to solidify in my head. It is just very funny to me how it is a, it's such a totally different mindset to think about. And for some people, it, it comes to them so naturally. I taught it to a friend in my core group and he was already helping me with the expropriation, even though I had more games under my belt and I had taught him, it just clicked for him. And it's it's the kind of strange mechanic that that can just happen for certain people. And I find that so fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. I'm looking forward to more plays of that one. And like I said, I think it's really rising in my estimation. So I certainly anticipate that. So yeah, that's uh, kind of wraps up our recent plays. Um, I think you know in the future we'll try to feature a game a piece and and just talk about it in in depth. I think maybe that's something that we find lacking in some other podcasts that we listen to, where it's just a lot of rapid fire talk about a bunch of different games. And I think maybe it'd be interesting if we kind of just nail down some of these games and and just talk about them. And and hopefully for those of you that that know the game, it will be insightful discussion even before we get on to you know, whatever topic we're thinking will deserve the airtime at that moment. But speaking of which, we kind of wanted to open up this inaugural episode and talk about our gaming tastes, right? I, I mentioned earlier that this is going to be a somewhat communally hosted podcast, so people kind of rotate in and out. But I do think there's still value in even us right now talking about what some of our gaming tastes are, how those have changed. Do we think they're going to change more? What do we see the future holding for us in terms of what games we're going to be interested in? And hopefully that will give you all as as the listeners an idea of how we view games, what we enjoy in games, and that will help give you an idea and a baseline for our thoughts on games that we talk about, you know, episode to episode. So, yes, we, we kind of had some questions down here, but I just want to open up the floor, right? What games do you find yourselves drawn to, right? When you hear about a game, are there, are there any buzzwords that immediately have your attention? Or do you find that you're more hesitant? You need to learn more, right? Is, is there anything that immediately catches your ear? What, what are you drawn to? Probably it's easier to answer this question in terms of thinking about like what you know why why i play games right why do i play games is it um because i enjoy them is it because i want like some kind of hit, like some kind of narrative um is it because i want uh like a contest of skill um and i it's probably a pretty even intersection of both um and so what sort of foments what sort of accelerates those elements uh man first and foremost and we talked about it all all throughout the beginning of this podcast is this this idea of a really like genuinely meaningful decision space right you can have big decisions you can have little decisions but the ultimate question is do do any of those matter like which of those really truly matter um and it's it's about like how many quality decisions are you making uh, at any given moment that could really impact the length of the game. Um, do they matter to myself? Do they matter to, 
you know, to others? Does, does what I do matter to the other players at the table? Uh, and I think it should. Like, those are the types of games that that draw me in, right? So, I mean, there's a lot of games that uh, fit the bill there. So, you know, then we talk about genres. Well, for me, like, I learned this after playing many games over the years. I learned that I tend to gravitate towards games with, generally speaking, um, like, less rules overhead, right? I, I kind of wanted games that I, I valued games that didn't really give you too much to deal with on your turn. But at the same time, those few things you can do are so, so crucial and essential to to the game, to your success in the game itself, that every, that's, we were circling back, every decision matters, right? So if you go, you know, if you know me even a little bit, uh, my board game taste, uh, you know that my favorite board game is The Great Zimbabwe. And in that game, your turn structure is extremely Spartan, right? You have you have a bid. You, you just say some values of cows and it decides your turn order. Um, and on your turn, you could do like a thing. You could place a thing or you can maybe do a slightly powerful thing, which is a, an upgrade. Um, and that's it. Like that is it. But the consequences of those things just matter so much. The bid, where do you fall in turn order? Uh, how much cows do you spend? You're giving cows his money in that game. How much money do you spend? How much money are you willing to give to other players? How much money will you have left over to do the things you want in the round? And that's just from a bid, right? And this you can see this feature in a lot of other games, but um, kind of what elevates the Great Zimbabwe to me is it's that Spartan. So you move into the action round. You can place a thing, whether it's a, a disc or a craftsman, right? And similar to go similar to these like abstract strategy type games you could put put it almost anywhere within some constraints and at one space to the left one space to the right it could matter and like that's the that's the kind of weight that i'm looking for in games um and complexity doesn't really bother me i'm not saying i don't like complex games but like i'm i value every decision mattering uh, as many decisions mattering as possible and really minimizing sort of the lead up time to get to the to that point. Like a lot of euros, a lot of modern euros, there's like just things you have to do. Like, okay, I gotta get my extra worker. I have to set this engine going, and then I can start doing heavy things that impact the game. But like, you have nothing, and you build. Like, I want to minimize that lead up time that gets to those decisions. And in Great Zimbabwe, right there, smack dab, you get the auction. That's a, that decision matters, the first turn of the game. So. Yeah, I think that's one thing that really springs to mind. Is, uh, that splatter adage, which I believe is incorrectly attributed, perhaps. I don't actually know the history, but like, right, if you I think so, regardless, yeah. the sentiment is there. And I, I tend to agree with this. If you can't lose the game on the first turn, then why have a first turn? Right? Like, now I think there's probably room to have some nuance in that conversation and maybe combat that idea a little bit, but I think it's getting at the heart of something, which is, is that first decision important? Because if it's important, then it can affect the outcome, which means it could cause you to lose or win, right? The barring, you know, many, 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 many other decisions that come along as you play, continue to play the game. Like, obviously, there's, there's time for that decision to 
decrease in its effect as you make good or bad decisions throughout the duration of the game. But that decision did matter, right? And like you're talking about, like where you place your first monument in the Great Zimbabwe, where you play, uh, this is another spotter, but where you place your first restaurant, uh, you know, uh, if we want to keep in that theme, Indonesia, where, where are you, uh, what, what company you acquire and how you expand? Like, it's just like, Though their games are a hallmark of that, where you're immediately into incredibly important decisions. If we talk about 18xx, right, Auc- the private auction in most in several of them, 1830, namely, you're immediately into a decision that matters. And so, like, I see that being an element of of your gaming taste for sure, but definitely mine as well. What about you, Chris? Are there any things that kind of pique your interest when you hear hear them or like anything that draws you in or is there just like a common thread with some of these games that you're really enjoying right now oh absolutely and to a certain extent i will sound like a broken record because i have a feeling all three of us have a lot of overlap when it comes to our gaming tastes but yeah i certainly admire games that accomplish a lot with very little Um, In terms of having a a rule set that is fairly light, low overhead, but then offers a lot of crunchy, consequential decisions through that emergent complexity, through getting hands-on experience with the game's mechanics and seeing like kind of organically where the, the tricky decisions lie. They're not baked into... The game's rulebook, they they kind of appear during play. Once you come into contact with the the other players, so uh, to tie into my ad- admiration for elegant games, I also usually value high interactive games as well. This was a, a gradual discovery for me. You know, I was playing uh, not not a ton, but several very popular midway Euro games for maybe a year or two, enjoying games like Concordia and Viticulture and the Castles of Burgundy. And around the same time I was enjoying these games, I also kind of stumbled into what are often called old-school German-style games, of which the designs of Reiner Knizia are often attributed to this this classic Eurogame design school of games that released in the 90s and early 2000s. And as a point of comparison, um, after playing both of these schools of games kind of concurrently back to back, what was a important moment in defining my gaming taste was that as I was racking up the repeat plays of Viticulture, I was noticing my desire to play the game was slowly but surely diminishing. I felt like I was kind of learning everything the game had to teach me. The the structure of Viticulture, a worker placement game about um, producing a lot of wine and fulfilling contracts for a race of to 20 or 25 victory points. I had just seen it play out so similarly time and time again. Oftentimes, the very same worker placement actions in each game that were the most valuable in one game would be the most desirable in the next game. And you just try to exploit them time and time again. Only difference would be maybe someone beat you to the punch and grabbed that worker placement spot you wanted. But 
the revelation to me anyway, was that the more reps I got on the, those Euro games, the less juice there was to squeeze out of them. Where for me, the more I was playing Reiner Knizia's games, at the time it would have been Raw and Tigris and Euphrates, the more infatuated I was becoming with those games. Uh, with each additional play, I felt like I was uncovering a new layer to consider, um, new nuances that were initially you know, hidden from me when I was just coming to grips with the rule set. I was learning lessons that I'd need to apply to all of my future games. And that that degree of emergent complexity became something I kind of demand out of the games I play. And that kind of was a defining moment in my taste for games that had a lot of player interaction, um, interfacing with other players. Because, you know, in a game like Viticulture or the Castles of Burgundy, you spend a lot of time interfacing with the game's mechanics, but not necessarily the other people around the, the table. And mechanics can become familiar where, you know, a human being you're playing with, they're a dynamic source of entropy. You don't, you can't always predict what they're going to do. And I feel like that injects a lot of longevity into the games that I enjoy, uh, that brought about by that player interaction. Um, I, I brought up a lot of points. Is there anything anyone wants to riff off of or um, oh, mention? Yeah. That- no, absolutely. I think player-driven chaos is what I want, right? I want the game state to be so drastically affected by the players playing that if I play with a different set of players or even that same set of players in a different context at a different time, that that is what is creating the unique board state and the unique circumstances that we are playing this game under that is what is so deeply compelling to me and once i realized that i can't really go back i tried to flirt with euros again and i did have a good time with something like great western trail i, I liked part of the puzzle but i was just missing that player interaction and and having to come to grips with who i'm playing with i have to I have to look at what you're doing on the board and then that ultimately results in me looking at you and you're a person that I'm sitting here with and having this experience with and that means something. And so like, that's just where I'm at with these games. And it's it's unfortunate because I feel like so much of the hobby has been cut out from under me, right? Like so much of the hobby is focused on that other type of game. And great for those people that enjoy it. I'm not going to yuck their yum, but I think that for me there's just there's it's very narrow the type of game that I'm interested in. But ultimately that only serves my ultimate desire which is to play these games more deeply. Right? I don't need the next game. I don't need the next thing because I'm going to be happy playing whatever game we're talking about 50 some odd time, maybe more, you know? Like I could there's games in my collection where it's like, I could see really not really ever tying, tiring of this, right? Like maybe I'm not like burning up for it, right? On a game night. But if we play it, I'm going to have an eight out of 10 experience every time, right? Because I'm coming to grips with a new puzzle, right? Every time I play Chicago Express or every time I play Fresh Fish or every time I play Tigers and Euphrates or 1830 or Food Chain Magnate or The Great Zimbabwe, like every one of those games I just mentioned, I'd be happy playing hundreds of times i think and that's not an unrealistic expectation and idea and that also gets me away from this kind of consumerist mindset i guess 
which is something else I'm finding myself wanting to combat a little bit. Yeah, I'm uh, interesting that you mentioned this consumerist mindset and what every everything that's popular in this board game hobby is shifting to. It's re- it's a really big turnoff to me when you try to get a sense of a game, like a new game, a recent game, and it feels just really designed. Like you know what I mean? Like it feels designed. Like it ha- it works a very specific way. Like you know, not to, I don't want to, you know, uh, inadvertently trash on certain games that, you know, have their dues, but like something like, um, there's a game called Merchant's Cove where you, it's a Euro. It's, it looks like a medium weight Euro. Um, and every person plays a very different way. And that's like the appeal. You're all doing the same thing to get points, but you play a completely different way. And it just reeks of being very specifically designed and just removing all agency or expression. And every, every I don't know what they are, a character in that game probably has to, is going to be played the same exact way or there's going to be a best way to play them no matter who's at the helm, right? Versus these games that we talk about where the, the mechanisms kind of, fade but also lend themselves like i want i don't want the mechanisms of a game to surprise me after the initial like reveal okay here's how you play i don't want the mechanisms to be the things that keep me coming back i want the players to keep surprising me and using the mechanisms in different ways um and eventually it just becomes like again expression of themselves like oh they're super aggressive and they use this really well or they're very very good like in in 18xx games uh Oh, this person is really good at maximizing this particular rank of trains, or this person really knows how to navigate uh, a, the auction, or this person is just really, really good at getting that first perm. Like those have those don't really talk about the me- mechanisms anymore. They talk about the expression of the player. Does that make sense? Versus like super overly designed game. Like oh yeah, I did, I I really tried this strategy and like the sheep strategy, and it really worked for me. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> great, <laughs> but that's not what I'm looking for. Like, I want, I want you to show me you in the game, and I'll show you me, and and then it becomes this cool contest of skill, and we're like, oh wow, nice, you know, nice play there. Well, and it's something that's player balanced, right? Like when I talk about player, yes. when I talk about player driven chaos, that also means player driven balancing, right? Like we have yes. so many of these games now where people talk, right? Everyone talks about like, oh, is this game balanced, right? Is Scythe balanced? Is is Agricola balanced? Is it is a Feast for Odin balanced in its various strategies? And I think for me, I'm not interested in the designer being so intent upon everything equalizing at the end of the game, right? I want the players to decide what is strong and what is not, and then the players to respond to what is strong and what is not, and ultimately to make what is weak strong possibly through player driven meta and player balancing right like i want people in the great zimbabwe to use in guy a lot and then realize oh we can do this to get against like to come against this god right that's player driven balancing that's not like sure yeah i i, I think within reason for example the splatter guys were like we want each of these to have their moment but like that's a player driven moment Right, you have to find the moment and evaluate: is this the proper thing at this moment in time? And that's on the duty of the players, not the designer having a math degree and understanding that per action, seven and a half points is the barometer. So 
when we get to the end of this game, it's going to be 215 to 208 to, you know, 197. It's like, cool, great. Like, I want games <laughs> where someone shellacks me because they made better decisions and we as a collective opposing players didn't do enough to stop them, right? I want to get smacked in the face sometimes. Like, I want to feel that. But we could. There was an opportunity to do oh, yeah, so. Yeah, no, for sure. If for we sure. saw There it. was an opportunity. Right. Exactly. And I'm not saying no right. balance, but I'm saying... Not right. the paradigm of balance that's been set up in the wider hobby, I don't think. I think I'm talking about a different type of balance right. here. So that's another thing for right. me. Yeah, I definitely relate to that. Currently, my favorite mechanic in a game, it's probably auctions. I own so many auction games. And talk about players collectively coming together to decide how to balance a game. The auctions are literally players need to come up with what is something worth to me what is it worth to them? Let's find out right here, right now, and have an auction to find out. And I just I find certain mechanics like auctions and maybe um, network building or tile placement. I particularly admire these mechanics because they offer the opportunity to get everyone involved at the same time. Um, in a network building game, players are kind of um, building up the infrastructure of a board together, and it's a shared space. Um, the same with tile placement, like a game like Tigris and Euphrates, where no one owns any section of the board, but you you build it up together and try to eke out your marginal advantages, um, even though the whole thing is a big hodgepodge. Anyone can play a tile any on any open space on the board. So certain mechanics definitely do pique my interest when I hear about them more than others. And it's those ones where I feel like they provide focal points of interaction between the players. Yeah, a communal board space is so important to me, right? I'm not interested in coming to the end of a game and looking over at what you did on your own little tableau and board, right? I want to get to the end of the game and I want to see what we built, right? Through aggression, yes, but also through times where we just kind of, we developed this area of the board, you know, sometimes maybe there was a shared incentive sometimes, maybe there wasn't. And we get to look at the end of the game and say, we built this communally and your decision at this point on the board impacted my decision to build here and to do this and to do that, right? That's what I'm looking for. And that's a real hallmark of a lot of the games that I enjoy is that moment where you get to the end of the game and you look at what you've built together. And not in like a, it's weird because it's like, usually it's in very high conflict games, but I'm still like, there's this, this level of, we did this together. Like I did better than you and I'm glad I did. I won. That's what I was trying to do. But like, <laughs> we all had a say in how this game developed and how it looks at the end. And I love that. Right. Yeah. You put your own personal stamp on it. The The finished board state may never look like that ever again. And any other game that gets played. Um, but for your collective decisions created almost like this work of art in this particular instance. It's uh, super cool. So on, on that note, that is really kind of, I, I think, why we gravitate towards these games is that element of communal agency, it, it just creates a narrative, right? You don't remember that, I don't remember what happened when I beat somebody by just barely five points in some random Euro, but I remember like this particular thing you did to me in, 
in 18xx where you laid this track this way and it it ruined my game it just t- tanked me and every every step after that uh, i i was trying to catch up um it's it just that's what drives the narrative in these games that we enjoy you just remember it that much more deeply because you're not focused on the mechanisms you're focused on how people check you how people uh interact with you how people figure out how to best you um and that's what makes these games really sing and really be memorable um in my opinion i do want to ask then do we feel like these tastes will shift or maybe more interestingly like how have you found that they have shifted you know maybe somewhat briefly because obviously like the tastes we have now are the more relevant ones but was there a time and a place where you were enjoying these other games right like what what is that what is that story in a nutshell for you in, in terms of how those tastes have shifted so chris i don't know like what what's kind of your story in that in that sense sure i'll try to give you a very abridged version some of which i hinted at with um discovering reiner knizia games around the same time i was playing midweight euros but yeah i was i mean very early on when i first got in the hobby i was playing a lot of negotiation and bluffing and social deduction games which were a blast um and that that gradually transitioned into wanting a little more rules complexity so there was a period where i played a lot of area control, troops on a map, combative type games. We're talking Comet, Inish, a Game of Thrones second edition. And so I've always enjoyed interaction because those games are quite interactive. But I think the turning point for me was, you know, I had dipped my toes in the water with some midweight Euros, Concordia, Scythe, Castles of Burgundy, I felt ready to try, let's let's try a heavy Euro. And I chose a pretty good one, I think. It was 2020 when I started playing Brass Birmingham. And what the new experience that Brass Birmingham provided to me that I took to like catnip was, oh man, this the, the idea of the shared infrastructure on this board. The fact that I might create this supply of resources of iron or coal And I might be thrilled that one of my opponents decides to come over and consume the resources I built. And like, wow, we're playing this competitive game where, yeah, I'm trying to win. But some of the interactions I have with my opponents are going to be positive. Some of the interactions, a lot of them with network blocking and stuff, are going to be negative. That spectrum of um, both collaboration and competition, both being provided in this in the same game, was very alluring to me. Um, and that set me down the trail of playing games with, I didn't know this at the time, but a lot of games that are feature shared incentives. And I, this is kind of a joke, but possibly the best board gaming purchase I ever made was a set of Roxley Iron Clays, only <laughs> for the fact that now that I had these nice currency counters, I decided to start searching for games that required a lot of currency. Um, and that led me to the world of economic board games. So I got I got these poker chips and my next couple purchases, I think, were Food Chain Magnate, Chicago Express, and Imperial. And then I was just off to the races. There was this whole new world of... Um, highly interactive, player-driven economic games that was opened up to me. The gateway was kind of brass. And 
uh, that's kind of defined my taste. I've learned I really like economic shared incentive games that are high on interaction and really justify their, at times, heavy rule sets with the consequential decision-making RJ alluded to. So yeah, now I'm also a big fan of Splatter. The Great Zimbabwe is a top 10 game for me as well. And that, that was kind of my journey through through my taste-defining process. That's that's super interesting to hear, like that development. And I'm curious, that I'll open this up to anyone. I, I don't know that we... We all have to go through, you know, our, our, our stories or whatever. I'm sure we'll get into that as we, you know, continue to do this podcast and stuff like that. It's like how, how our tastes have developed. But I mean, for either of you, do you feel like you're rather settled in these tastes? Like, I know for me, the tastes have changed so rapidly for me, I, I've only really been playing board games for like a couple years, and I feel like every three months something changes in how I approach this hobby, and that's probably like that was just kind of a throw out throwaway guess, but that feels accurate. And and even sometimes the the feedback loop is even quicker, and sometimes that's fun, right? You fall into a new niche or you start to enjoy something, but for me, I. I feel like I'm falling in, like kind of settling in a little bit. I feel as though, like I said, I tried to go back. I tried to open myself back up to these Euro games a little bit. I tried and pretty much failed. It's not something I'm interested in really at all anymore. And, And so I feel like I'm kind of, yeah, kind of settling into some of these tastes a little bit and also settling into how I approach like purchases and sales and things like that within the hobby as well. And it's an interesting it's an interesting place to be. I'm not really sure what to do with it because I'm so familiar with things just upending themselves every few months and having the new exciting thing. But for me, I think I'm settling into this period of being rather content and wanting to explore what I have, right? Like people say that a lot and I've said that a lot in the past, but this is really the first time that I f- really feel that, I think. I don't know, like do you, RJ, do you, does that resonate with you at all or what? what's kind of like, how are you approaching things now? Yeah, um, funny that you ask that. I think this question was posed somewhere else. Maybe this 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 Discord this be frequent, but um, like what's the next step for you? In terms of, it's a similarly framed question. And I remember saying, uh, probably call my collection to Oblivion and only play Go (laughs) (laughs) or or something like that. Like that's the next step for me. So that was my gut reaction to that question. And something tells me there's more than a toe in truth in that. So to answer your question, yeah, I, I kind of, I do feel that way. And I know it's a tired sentiment. A lot of people say this, um, and, but theoretically, I should like I have I have the games that like the, my collection that the, the things that I regard highly, a deep understanding of the rules to these games don't ever tell you how to win. Like you won't know mm. the, the rules tell you how to move the pieces, but they won't tell you when and why to move yeah. them. And the only re- way you can find that is through experience and 
an attempt to develop your skill and mastery. So why do I have all, all of such games that I'm not giving the time to? Like, that's the question that I'm wrestling with now. And it's really partly why I was very excited and uh, agreed to like sort of join this, uh, this journey, so to speak, to focus on the deep dive and really dig into them. Because I, again, the, the, these open-ended games are never going to see their worth unless I give them that time. And I won't give them that time if I'm always frothing at the mouth for the next new thing, even if the new thing is another such game. Yeah, that's probably going to happen. But there's so much quality already here that is ready to be unearthed. I think that's a that's a good note to to kind of end on. Um, you know, we were maybe a bit pressed for time, so I think we'll we'll kind of end it there. But I'm super excited about where this is headed. I hope that for those of you listening, that this was enjoyable. Like I said, we're going to develop the production as I learn editing and all of that. Right, it's growing pains. We will grow and how comfortable we are on the mics and with each other and so i think it's it's only up from here and i'm already feeling pretty good about this first kind of foray into this new podcasting venture This is the this has been the analysis paralysis podcast episode one. We look forward to talking more about games and various board game related topics with you all in the future and deep diving games and, and all manner of things. But yeah, if you would like to uh, go ahead and follow this podcast so that you can hear about new episodes as they come out, uh, we're hoping to release every couple weeks uh, loosely. I would love for each and every one of you to follow along, but thank you for listening to this podcast and good night. Peace out. See you next time.